Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, do you have any family? Yes, I do. I have my mother, plus a younger brother, plus a long-dead father and second brother. What about you? I do as well. I have two parents, an older sister, and an older brother. How does your family feel about you renouncing your home life and becoming a follower of the Buddha? They find it terribly strange, but both my parents have made it clear that they support me in all my odd endeavors. And when I'm through with this one, my mother's door will always be open for me. Meanwhile, my brother has his own affairs to busy himself with, and no real reason to meddle in mine. What about your family? They don't really understand what I'm doing out here, and they worry for me every single day. I tell them that I'm on the path that is right for me, but they still worry for my material wellness, and they resent that I'm not with them and assisting them in their own enterprises. That is regrettable indeed. I feel sympathy and compassion for them, and I also understand their concern. Samsara has rarely been so samsaric as the times we're in now. I hope that your efforts for their benefit are not for nothing. And at the same time, I trust that they won't be. Thank you, and I feel the same way for you and your family as well. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing the Buddhist perspective of the family. What is the Buddhist perspective on the family? How ought lay people have and maintain a family? How ought monks and nuns have and maintain a family? We hope you enjoy. So, what is the Buddhist perspective on family? Like much of what we've discussed in the course of this show, there isn't really one perspective at any given time, and the perspectives that do exist change over time, and for a variety of reasons. So in answering this question, I hope to start with early Buddhist perspectives and then follow Buddhism as it travels and as thought processes multiply throughout East Asia, starting with early Buddhist perspectives. We can sometimes think of Buddhism in its infancy as a social and cultural movement. It was a religious movement, but in a sense, it was also a very social movement that was started by Shakyamuni, the prince of the Shakya clan. We have often talked, albeit vaguely, about the Brahmanical background out of which Buddhism arose. We can go to this background and describe some important characteristics of the conception of this idea of family. First off, in the modern and western sense, there is blood family and chosen family. There are those who we are directly related to, and there are those we choose to surround ourselves with. There's a rather clear distinction between those two types of family. We are sort of permanently beholden to our blood family in a lot of ways, but in many cases, we get types of fulfillment from the chosen family that we don't always get from the blood family. I'm explaining this and laying it out to start somewhere familiar and work backwards to the family system in ancient India. Suffice to say, it was extremely complicated. In wealthy castes, families can be said to have been arranged into clans, which included several blood families of different castes organized together like a modern western business enterprise, with one family that dominated the clan and observed male inheritance, and then several other families which fulfilled special roles in service to that one family. Obligations felt by individuals in these clans were obligations to the entire enterprise. 
In the case of somebody very wealthy and important, like the prince of the Shakya clan, the historical Buddha, this meant that you had obligations to an enormous amount of people and resources. Thus, whenever Siddhartha Gautama left the palace, he was turning down his duty, his dharma, as it was in the Brahmanical tradition, and turning down his obligations not only to his blood family as the rulers of the Shakya clan, but also to all the other blood families organized into that clan, as well as rejecting his position as the male heir to that Shakya clan. By doing this, he was also overturning the existing social system in a very important way. We talked previously about how the disciples of the Buddha were born from rich castes and how that allowed them to leave. But the precedent before them was that second, third, and fourth sons were actually the ones who renounced, and the first sons were the ones who inherited. This did not challenge the existing social system in the same way that Shakyamuni's renunciation did. However, when Shakyamuni renounced, he set the example for the rest of the Buddhist community, and that example was kind of contrary to what was going on with the Brahmanical community. So, from the outset, the path of the Buddha is one of abandoning your obligations to your blood relatives and to their entire enterprise, whatever that enterprise may be. Not only did the Buddha have a mother and father and others who he had obligations to, he actually had a wife and a son as well. His wife was called Yasodhara, and his son was called Rahula. Both of them eventually became members of the Sangha, but only after the Buddha left them and went out to become a monk. In fact, Rahula's name translates roughly to shackle or binding in English because he was a worldly attachment that the Buddha likely bemoaned before he left. During his life, the Buddha is notably cold whenever monks and nuns ask about their family members. He viewed the family as a very immediate and severe obstacle to enlightenment because it represents the strongest attachments that a person can have. This poses a problem for Buddhism, especially as it travels to other regions of Asia. Not only was the community around Buddhism still organized in this clan system that they had to reach equilibrium with, but the other places that Buddhism travels to actually care even more about the family unit than the ancient Indian cultures that we're talking about did. While the family enterprise was certainly important, there was still a widespread social precedent for renunciation in the Brahmanical traditions. This is not actually as true in other places, like in China or Japan, in these same ancient times. So let's jump for a minute over to China around the 1st through the 3rd centuries of the Common Era. This is around the time that Buddhism begins to arrive there by means of the Silk Route, translations of sutras, and other cultural exchanges. The prevailing backdrop in China at the time of Buddhism's arrival is Confucianism. For those that don't know, the social and political philosophy of Confucianism revolves almost entirely around the role of the individual in their family and how they ought to carry out all of their unique relational obligations to their relatives, to their fellow countrymen, and to their emperor. Renunciation was not an option at all in this system. There was a very clear social hierarchy that extended even to second and third and fourth sons, and none of them could just shirk all of their family responsibilities and leave. There was very little social precedent for that, and what little there was was among the rivaling social and political philosophers known as the Taoists. Thus, when Buddhism arrives and encourages everybody to renounce, this is not received well with the Confucians. This particular struggle carries on through the first millennium and is one of the many reasons for the Buddhist persecutions we discussed in a previous episode. Some developments in Mahayana Buddhism actually arise as possible solutions to this debate. For example, we have talked about how one reason that compassion and kindness is encouraged in Mahayana Buddhism 
is due to the fact that in this system, due to innumerable reincarnations, everybody around you has at one time been your mother and your father and your son and your daughter and so on and so forth, and so they should be treated that way. Thus, Buddhism seeks to say here that essentially everyone is their family, and the pursuit of the Bodhisattva path is the pursuit of liberation for all sentient beings, and is actually a much wider circle of care and concern than the Confucian system. It's a system where they're exhibiting filial piety to everybody, and not just to their blood relatives. I would also suspect that within these debates, non-duality plays a role in cementing that idea of other people being family members regardless of blood relation. Exactly. Especially in the sense that even though they're making this argument that they're doing this because everybody constitutes one giant family according to these innumerable reincarnations, at the same time, family is still an attachment of some kind, and it's kind of an imaginary one in the sense that although we know that people who are related by blood share genetic information, those attachments and connections, they're not really tangible, at least in the time period where these philosophies are coming about. They can't really touch the relationship or the connection that they have with these other people. And so, in that regard, Buddhism says like, yes, this has a function in our lives, and that function actually is not what the Confucians say it is. It's actually kind of a barrier, and we should think about it differently in order to reach enlightenment and in order to fully renounce and get rid of all of our attachments because these attachments lead to desire and desire leads to suffering. In addition to these developments in Mahayana Buddhism, we also see some apocryphal texts that we know were authored for the first time in China rather than in the Indian subcontinent. These texts were authored in the first few centuries of the Common Era but they are still written in the Buddha's voice, even though he actually had passed away centuries before. These texts become much softer on the issue of family than the Pali Canon texts were. These texts represent attempts to reconcile the issue of the family in Chinese Buddhism. One example of this is the text that we saw recently whenever we discussed the life of Madhagalyayana. He was known as Mulian in Chinese, and if you remember, there's a story in his life where he goes looking for his family, his parents, in different realms of rebirth. He has these psychic powers that allow him to traverse different realms, and he's going to find his parents, and he finds that his father has been reborn into a heaven because he had good karma, but he discovers that his mother is born in the realm of hungry ghosts. So, he goes and asks the Buddha what can be done for his mother. And the Buddha says that he can't really do anything to rescue her himself. The Buddha can't do anything, Mangalyayana can't do anything, but they can make offerings of food and other things and maybe even recite some sutras in her name, and through that ritual of merit transfer, she may be able to eventually achieve a better status. Mangalyayana, being devoted to his mother, exhibiting filial piety, does this, and eventually she's reborn into better circumstances. This story incorporates and codifies existing traditions of ancestor worship into a Buddhist context, and thereby establishes an important Buddhist festival called the Ghost Festival, which is still observed to this day in many East Asian countries. Uh, what time of year is that? This is, I believe, in the 10th month of the lunar calendar, on the 17th or maybe 15th day. For the sake of time, let's jump ahead to Japan in the early modern period. 
Much of Japanese society was also heavily influenced by Confucian ideology during this time, particularly the 1600s through the 1800s. And they had an abiding suspicion of Buddhism, but for entirely different reasons than the Chinese did in ancient times. Instead of being suspicious on the grounds of the issue of renunciation and family obligations, they mainly viewed Buddhism as being archaic, anti-modern, and foreign as it had arrived to Japan from China and originated in India. So they began to reject and persecute Buddhism because they were pushing not only toward what they viewed to be modernity, but also toward what they viewed to be a nation superior to the European colonial powers of the era. This involved adopting Western science and technology and some social aspects, such as the nuclear family model, but with some peculiarities that we don't have much time to talk about in detail here. The catch is that Buddhism had more or less been the dominant force in Japanese culture and society and politics for about a thousand years by that point in history. There were still a lot of Buddhists. One of the ways that these Buddhist institutions adapted to the budding imperial orientation that they saw Japanese society heading toward was they adapted the same Chinese Buddhist solutions to the problem of renunciation, and they oriented them toward the emperor specifically, and toward the imperial project which Japan was beginning to undertake. Namely, veneration of the Buddha became veneration of the emperor, and the emperor was seen as the great father of all Japanese people, and so veneration of him was also an expression of filial piety. So they were able to hit all three traditions with kind of one practice, or at least with one orientation. Not only was he the father, but he was also the sponsor of Buddhism, and he was also the emperor. He was carrying out his political and colonial and modernizing enterprises. And so all of these different philosophies were oriented in that direction, such that they all fit together. These are some of the ways that the issue of the family has played out across history in East Asia. According to Mahayana Buddhist doctrine, how ought lay people have and maintain a family? This question is good because it points at the lived aspect of Buddhism. A tiny, 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 tiny portion of the population of self-identifying Buddhists in the world today are actually monastics. The vast majority of them are lay people. That being the case, the question of applying doctrine to lived experience is significant for hundreds of millions of people. The answer is that there are many, 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 many answers, but the doctrines of non-attachment, compassion, wisdom, and meditation still apply. One ought to know that attachment leads to desire and that desire leads to suffering, but that suffering has an end and that end is through the Buddhist path. If they have a family, that means that they ought to observe non-attachment to them. They ought to live in the world with them, but not become so attached to them that their family members' inevitable passing away causes them to suffer. They ought to practice compassion and right speech and so on and so forth with them as well, as they are often the hardest people to be able to practice those things with. Lay people in any and all religions around the world have a level of freedom to ignore and adopt whatever they choose, so the answer to how a Buddhist layperson ought to have and maintain a family likely has as many answers as there are lay Buddhists with families. They don't have to follow the same rules that monks and nuns do, which sometimes include celibacy and things like that. So they can marry, they can have children, they can get an occupation, they can study and practice as little or as much as they want to, and their family life ends up looking just like everybody else that is around them in most cases. And so there's just as many answers to the question of how lay people ought to have and maintain a family as there are lay people. How ought monks and nuns 
have and maintain a family? This question is also actually pretty significant to include in this conversation because you might be thinking to yourself as we ask it, I thought that by definition monks and nuns had to remain celibate. This is very often the case in Buddhism as well as in most other religions. Whether somebody already has a family or not, when they become ordained, they frequently have to maintain this celibacy and isolation from the rest of society. This is true of Theravada Buddhists and many, but not all, Mahayana Buddhists. There are some Mahayana institutions which have chosen to be a lot more lax on the rules for monks and nuns and have adapted to certain social and historical circumstances in order to survive, and have thus challenged this idea of the typical monk or nun. We have talked frequently about how Mahayana Buddhism frequently challenges the moral framework that's contained in the Pali Canon. They say that attachment to that is better than attachment to an evil lifestyle, for example, but the middle way is not achieved by such incredible commitment to that moral system. Moreover, because the true nature of cause and effect is such a subtle and ineffable kind of knowledge, we can't get too attached to the moral aspects of karma because they're so wishy-washy and contextual and because they operate in ways that are far outside most of our realms of understanding. That being the case, we cannot actually say for sure if it's better for a monk or a nun to forego raising a family or not. Only a Buddha would know the answer to that question. Because of that, there are monastics in some schools of the Mahayana, such as in Pure Land Buddhism, who can have families. These monastics in Pure Land, particularly Japanese Pure Land, actually have sort of an incentive to have families. I mentioned before that there were some historical circumstances that caused these rules to change for some schools of Buddhism. In Japan, as I mentioned before, Buddhism came under a bit of social scrutiny and persecution, and that only ended about 70 years ago. Thus, Buddhist institutions have actually been starving economically and socially in Japan for a long time. Big famous temples are tourist attractions and their world heritage sites and historical sites, and so they will survive from the state protection and the tourism revenue that they generate. But smaller local temples, where most lived religion actually happens, regularly struggle to find people to live in them and maintain them. And so the result is that in many cases, being the abbot of a temple often passes from father to son. However, increasingly, people don't want to take over temples and maintain them and perform the ritual duties for the community. Reasons for this include wanting to get a better paying job and live in a nicer place. Being the priest or abbot of a small Buddhist temple does not pay well. Furthermore, for reasons we've talked about in previous episodes, most of what these temples actually do nowadays is carry out funerary rituals for the community. So the question for many young Japanese people is, would you rather move to a city and get a good office job with pretty good money, or would you rather move to this boring little temple in the suburbs or maybe in a rural area and be underpaid as a funeral home director? I think we all know which one that we would likely choose and that they would likely choose. Beyond that, fewer and fewer people in modern society identify with the same religious institutions that they once did. I don't like to say that people are becoming less and less religious, but I will say that affinity to large religious institutions such as the Big Five of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, is decreasing sharply among younger and younger people. That is another reason why people do not often take over these temples from their families. Thus, it is frequently said that Buddhism is actually dying in Japan. I don't disagree with this statement. I don't think that it's likely that the texts and the sites will all be destroyed, but maybe the only sites that will still be maintained will be large and historically significant ones and maybe the texts will be moved to museum collections, 
or maybe people will digitize them or something like that. And also, maybe people will no longer call themselves Buddhists sometime in the future. There's no way to know. But certainly, the economic and social and historical circumstances surrounding Japanese Buddhism have caused there to be a serious problem among these smaller temples. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion of Buddhism and the family. Join us next week where we will be discussing Buddhism as a philosophy or a religion. Why do some say that Buddhism is not a religion? What evidence do they have for that claim? What are the historical roots of this debate? We hope to see you there. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.